0: Father, we just thank you for uh, what you're teaching us through your word in the book of Hebrews. And, Lord, there are so many of us that that we really aren't experiencing everything that you have for us, Lord. Everything that you have for us in a close relationship with you. And, and that's really what this book is all about. It's about taking us past the outer courts of uh, living and just living out our life without any cognizant, uh, any... Uh, any awareness of your presence lord and and so what what the author is trying to do is to get us into the holiest of holies lord where we live our lives uh uh with a keen sense of of, of your presence and in, in everything that we do and lord that's where we want to live and and so, Lord, we want to come out of the shadows and into your marvelous light and, and show us that today as we, as we look at this text and show us how to do that, Lord. And we ask that you do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I was riding the motorcycle through the Ozarks this past week and I was up on the Arkansas-Missouri border and I saw this beautiful ranch for sale. I mean, it, was a, it had a big old farmhouse up on top of a hill, and down at the bottom, it's about 150 acres, and down at the bottom of the hill was this beautiful lake, and man, I said, what a place to live out your life. So I'm announcing today that, no, I'm not. Uh, it was above my pay grade. I didn't even call them because I knew it was above my pay grade, so I'm back in the swamp, and it looks like I'm going to be here in the swamp for a while, but, but the beautiful swamp. I love Lafayette. But, uh, you know, the great thing about being a Christian, I mean, you look at these places with all this peace and serenity, but, but the great thing about being a Christian is that no matter where you're located geographically, you can find peace and serenity in the Lord. I mean, we're part of a new covenant, an infinitely better covenant than the old covenant. In fact, it's a covenant that's made the, the old covenant Obsolete. And because we're part of that new covenant, we, have, we can live in the greatest place you can possibly live, in the very presence of God. Someone came up to me after the last service, the last time I was here, and they sort of rebuked me because they perceived that, that I was uh, putting down the old covenant. And apparently they weren't hearing what I was saying. And so I want to say it again. Uh, Let me me repeat what I said last time. The old covenant was not good. Did you catch that? The old covenant. I'm going to say it. I'll say it again. The old covenant was not good. The old covenant was absolutely perfect. It wasn't just good. It was absolutely perfect. The problem wasn't with the old covenant. The problem was with us. I mean, we're by nature rebels, we're by nature sinners, and we couldn't keep the old covenant. And so we needed a covenant that was better than perfect. And so God gave us the new covenant. And that's exactly what the author says in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. He says, Jesus has obtained for us a more excellent ministry, the ministry of the new covenant. Now, how can you get more excellent than excellent? Well, the Old Covenant was excellent. But again, the problem wasn't with the Old Covenant. The problem was with us. And so God gave us a more perfect covenant. He gave us the New Covenant. Now, here's my question, Lord. Why didn't you just give us the New Covenant in the first place? Why did, you, why did, we, have to do, why did we have to have this Old Covenant? Well, let me propose to you three reasons I think God gave us the Old Covenant first. First of all, because of the pride of mankind, because we're prideful creatures. Most people consider themselves pretty good people. If you ask the average guy on the street if he thinks he's going to get to heaven, you know what he's going to tell you? Sure, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm a pretty good person. I mean, most people believe that, you know, they stand up pretty well against the law. Remember what the Israelites said when they were given the law? Remember what they said in Exodus chapter 19, verse 8? They said, all the people together said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. You gave us the law, Lord, we can do this. We're pretty good people. Well, we found out real quickly when we read through, the, through Genesis and Exodus, or actually Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and the rest of the Old Testament, they really weren't pretty good people. They're just, they were just like us. They were pretty bad people. And they, they had no ability to keep the old covenant. And so, you know what the Lord said when they said that? The Lord said, you know what? In essence, what he said, he said, I'll give you 1,500 years to try to keep it. Let's see what you can do in 1,500 years. And you know what the verdict was at the end of the 1,500 years? Well, you can read it in Romans chapter 3. And Let me sum it up. There is none righteous, no, not one. No, not one. No person has ever kept the new covenant. No person has ever kept the law except one. Who was that? Jesus Christ. But none of us have. Now, the second reason that I believe God gave us the old covenant first was, and I think, I don't just think this, I know this because it's biblical, it was a tutor to lead us to Jesus Christ. That's still the purpose of the law today. I'll tell you this right now. If you're not a born-again believer, you're under the Old Covenant for all practical purposes because you're going to be judged by the law. And what the law should show you, the law's like a mirror. You look, the, you look into the mirror and you see yourself compared to God's perfect standard and you realize that you don't look so good. And that's what the law does. The law is like a tutor, and, and, and the law, along with the Holy Spirit, convict us of our sin. The law shows us what depraved sinners we are, and it shows us our need for a Savior. So the law serves that purpose. Well, there's a third purpose, that I, or, or third reason I believe that God gave the old covenant before he gave us the new covenant, and that was to help us to understand and to appreciate the meaning of the new covenant. To appreciate Jesus Christ. To appreciate the cross of Jesus Christ. The author author of Hebrews told us in chapter 8 that the things of the old covenant, the law, the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, the temple, the Levitical priesthood, he said are all shadows and copies of the real thing. They're shadows and copies of the real thing. Paul put it like this in in Colossians chapter 2. He said that the law was a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Jesus Christ. Now, what did he mean by that? The substance is Jesus Christ. Well, the substance is the thing that casts the shadow. So when we are looking at the law, who are we really looking at? We're looking at the shadow of Jesus Christ. When we look at the temple and the tabernacle, we're looking at the shadow of Jesus Christ. But you don't want to live in the shadows. You want to live with the real thing. But God gave us the shadow so we could really learn about the real thing. Now, let's say you had a job at the zoo, or you wanted a job really bad at the zoo taking care of elephants. Now, I don't know. I'd want that job. It'd be a messy job, a big, messy job. I mean, I, I don't know why anybody would want a job. like. It, but let's for illustration say, say you wanted a job taking care of ele- elephants. Well, one of the ways you could prepare for that job would be to Look at the shadows of the elephants. You wouldn't want to jump in the cage right away with those elephants. You might get killed. So one of the ways you might prepare for that job is to look at the shadow of the elephants. And if you looked at the shadows of the elephants, what you would see is that an elephant is a humongous beast. You would see a really big shadow. And you would see this long trunk and these big ears. You could see the shadow of his ears and you could see the shadow of his trunk. And one of the things you would discover if you looked at his rear, he has a really small tail. So I could learn a lot about how I would approach elephants by looking at the shadows. I wouldn't come straight on with that elephant. You know the way I'd approach that elephant? From the rear. You ever watch people how they approach elephants and how they they move elements? They they don't get in front of the elephant. You'll get squashed if you do that. You get behind the elephant. But now you can study the shadows all day long, but you're never going to really know the elephant, and you're never going to really have a relationship with that elephant until you get in the very presence of the real thing. And so the Old Testament shadows, That's what they're for. They give us an appreciation of the greatness and holiness of God. And they show us how we're to approach God. They show us the magnificence of Christ, the necessity of the cross, the need for the resurrected life. life. And as I said before, they show us how we can approach God and how we can. Approach God. There's certain ways to approach. God's much bigger than any elephant. and You just don't run into the presence of God. You know, people that talk about, I've got a relationship with God, but if they don't know Jesus Christ, they, they're dealing with something much bigger than an elephant. They're dealing with an infinite God, and they don't know how to approach that God, and they're wasting their time thinking, they're, or they're wrong thinking they're approaching God when they really can't, unless they know the real way. And that's what the Old Testament Uh, or that's what the Old Testament is for is it's the shadow so we can learn from the shadows about the real thing so let's go to chapter 9 of of uh, the book of Hebrews let's go to chapter 9 and let's pick up in verse number 1 we're going to look at these shadows a little bit and we're going to learn about how we can approach God by looking at the shadows and that's what the author is doing here for us. It says in verse number 1 of chapter 9, it says, Then indeed, the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and and the earthly sanctuary. What's he saying right there? Well, the tabernacle, the earthly tabernacle and the temple, it was the place where God dwelt on earth. That was the place where the Jews approached God. And the Levites engaged in divine service there at the tabernacle. And, and so it was a, and that's where they worship God, and that's where they serve God, at the tabernacle. All right, now, what I had David do is make a slide of, of the uh, diagram of the... And, you, and if you have your bulletins, everybody got a bulletin? Pull out your bulletin, so you might want to... If you don't have good eyes, you can look at it uh, in your bulletins. But what we have here, we have, a ta- we have a diagram of the actual wilderness tabernacle. I took this out of uh, J. Vernon McGee's commentary on Exodus. So, uh, I'm sure he won't mind, but, uh, seeing he's long gone, but, but, uh, uh, that's where I got it. But just look at, look at the, look at the diagram there. And the first thing you see, you see the outer walls, you see where it says North, South, East, West, you see the outer walls of the, of the tabernacle, those outer walls were 8 feet high. They were 75 feet wide and 150 feet long. And they were made of this beautiful linen, Of these beautiful linen curtains hung on acacia poles. And so you had this beautiful outer court. Well, the, as soon as you would enter the gate, and look where you would enter. Where do you enter at? You would enter at the east gate. There was only one gate in the tabernacle, and that was the east gate. You know anything about the east gate? Go online and look at the East Gate in Jerusalem. You realize what they have done? They have bricked up the East Gate. You know why they bricked up the East Gate? Because they know that when Messiah comes, he's coming through the East Gate. And somehow they think bricks are going to stop him. (laughs) I've got news for you, they're not going to stop him. There's no way they're going to stop him. But it's almost as if they're saying by bricking up the East Gate, we don't want you in Jerusalem. We don't want you in the holy place. He's coming into the holy place, and he's coming through the East Gate. And so the opening there is there at the East Gate. As soon as you enter the East Gate, uh, once you're there into the tabernacle, the first thing you'll see there, you see the brazen altar. That's where the sacrifices were made. The sacri- where the bulls were sacrificed, the burnt offerings were made. What were the burnt offerings for? Do you remember? So that sinful men could have fellowship with God. Without that altar, sinful men could not have fellowship with God. The Jews could have no fellowship with God without that altar. And so you had the brazen altar. And... Uh, Uh, Just outside the tabernacle, the actual tabernacle, the actual tabernacle is the tent which is inside, just outside that you see the laver. And that's where the priests washed themselves. And they did their ceremonial cleansings before they actually went into the tabernacle. Now that tabernacle was something else. I mean, even though it was nothing more than a tent, it was 15 feet wide, 15 feet tall, 45 feet long. And the tabernacle, the tabernacle was made of these beautiful embroidered uh, of this beautiful embroidered material. Uh, made uh, had several colors: uh, purple, pur- purple for royalty; red for or scarlet for sacrifice; blue for heaven; white for purity; gold for divinity. And then the altar was brass, which is brass is symbolic in the Bible of judgment. And so you had this. They had the, it was a beautiful sight to see. And and there were two parts to the tabernacle. If you look at the actual tabernacle, that little rectangle up in the the upper part of the the court, if you look at that that tabernacle, it has two parts. It has the holy place where you see the menorah and the table of showbread, and then it has the veil, which is that line running across it, and then you have the holiest of holies. And so in verse number 2, he says, look at verse number 2 of chapter 9. He says, for the tabernacle was prepared the first part in which the lampstand, the table, and the showbread were at. Okay, so you had the lampstand and the table of the showbread, the the lampstand, what was that? It was a menorah. It had seven lights, and what did it represent? It represented the perfect light of God. Then you had the table of showbread. What was the table of showbread? Well, the table of showbread, you had 12 fresh loaves of bread, one for each tribe, Now, what what was God saying with the table of showbread? He was saying that these 10, 12 tribes live in my sight. They're always in my sight. If you're a child of God, you are always in his sight. You are always in his presence. And so so that's what we were being shown there. So you had the showbread and the lampstand. And then... uh, you also had the altar of incense. And so this incense was constantly being burned. And what was the incense? It was a sweet-smelling aroma unto the Lord. And then all of a sudden, you had the veil. Look at verse number 3. And behind the second veil, or the inner veil, the part of the tabernacle which is the holiest of all, the holiest of holies, that veil was hung on golden hooks with, with acacia poles overlaid in gold. I mean, it had to be a beautiful sight. All of these different colors that I talked about, it was four inches thick. I mean, it was this humongous veil. And, and so you had the veil, and then inside the veil, look at verse number uh, three, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, the holiest of holies. And the holiest of holies, he tells us in verse number 4, what was there. He says, which had the golden censer and the ark. Now, the golden, what the golden censer was, it took coals from the brazen altar and brought them into the presence of God. Now, why do you think maybe they did that? Well, you remember in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up? And he was a guy like me. He said, man, I'm a man of unclean lips. Man, I've got a foul mouth. And so uh, what, did the, what did the Lord do? He sent some angels and the angels brought coals and they put them on his lips and he was able to stand in the presence of God. And so you have this constant sacrifice being made in order to be in the presence of God. That's a picture that's being painted here. So you had the, so you had the, uh, you had the, the he says in verse number four, he says, which had the golden censer and then you had the ark, the most important piece of, of furniture in the entire temple was the Ark of the Covenant. He says, which you had the golden censure and the Ark of the Covenant. Now look what was in the Ark of the Covenant. On all sides it was overlaid in gold. Which, and look what was inside: the golden pot, which had the manna. Now here was this gold pot which had the manna. What manna was that? What manna is he talking about? The manna from the wilderness. You remember what happened to that manna? What happened to that manna? How long did that manna last? 24 hours and the worms ate it up. That's all it lasted. But God gave them a special dose of that manna and they put it in the golden pot and they put it in the Ark of the Covenant and it never rotted. So if you could have gotten in, looked into that ark, which you couldn't have done because you couldn't get in there, but if you could have looked in there, you could have seen some of the very manna that God gave them, that God dropped down from heaven and gave them when they were in the wilderness. You know, wouldn't it be cool if they found the ark and found the three things that were in the ark? Because if they did, I believe that manna is still there. And it's still just as fresh as ever. The second thing that was in there w- was there was the manna and there was Aaron's rod that budded. You remember the story about Aaron's rod? Do you remember the story? you remember the story about Korah? Korah, they were, they were in the wilderness, and Korah didn't like the fact that uh, Aaron and Moses were leading the people, and they got jealous, and so they mounted a rebellion, and God told them to get by their tents and stand by their tents, and what did he do? He, all of Korah and all of Korah's family what did he, and all of his friends, what did they do? God opened up the earth, and he swallowed them up all at once, and they were gone. No more murmuring from them. You might want to think about that next time you're murmuring against God or against his leadership, <laughs> against his pastor. You might, you might find the earth open up. But the very next day, the very next day, this is what's amazing to me, the very next day they begin to complain against Moses and Aaron again. And you know what God said to Moses? I'm going to wipe these people out once and for all. And you know what Moses did? He did what I would have done. He said, wipe them out, Lord. I'm tired of them. Now Moses didn't do that. That's what I would have done. Thank goodness I wasn't Moses. What Moses did, you know what he did? He fell on his face and began to pray for the people. He said, Lord, don't wipe them out. Just Do what you need to do. And God said, well, I'm going to show them who the leader is. And so what he did, he had every leader of every tribe bring a rod and place it in front of Moses. And then Aaron brought his rod. And nothing happened to the other 12 rods, the other 11 rods. But you know what happened to Moses' rod? Right in the very sight of the people, the rod bloomed leaves And then it bloomed blossoms, and then it made almonds, almonds, however you say that, almonds if you're southern, (laughs) right in their sight. And they realized then that Aaron was appointed to be God's high priest. And so they backed off, and they took the end of the rod, and they put it in the Ark of the Covenant. And I believe if you were to find the Ark of the Covenant today, you could eat fresh almonds right off of that rod. It's still blooming. God had a purpose in that. And then there was one other thing in the Ark of the Covenant. There were the Ten Commandments. The actual Ten Commandments written by the very finger of God. Boy, I hope there's a museum in heaven one day. And the Ark of the Covenant is there. I mean, we're going to see God, and who's, you know, I don't know if you're going to care that much about the stones, but man, to are going to see those stones actually written by the very hand of God, by the very finger of God. What a sight that had to be. But they didn't get to see it. The Ark was closed up. The Ark was closed up, and on the outside of the Ark was the mercy seat. And if you go on, it says, look in verse number 5, and it says, And above it were the cherubim of of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. I mean, here were these two golden angels that were made by craftsmen. And they're looking down upon the mercy seat with their wings covering their eyes. Why are the wings covering their eyes? Because of the glory of the Lord. If you're in the presence of the Lord, it's a blinding glory. If if God would open up the dimension right now and you could see his glory, it would blind you. And so there were the angels and and uh you've got this beautiful tabernacle. And really pretty pretty uh I don't want to say plain, but but pretty simple. Pretty simply, you know, nothing uh, nothing like some of the the ornate uh structures you see in in Europe, uh, old churches, nothing like that, but, but so magnificent and so wonderful. Now, let me ask you a question. If the shadow was that glorious, how much more glorious is the real thing? Look at verse number six. He's going on. He says, Now, when these things had been Thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. And so what he's talking about here, they would have to go in and they'd have to replace the showbread. Every couple of weeks, they'd have to replace the oil uh, in the, in the, uh, they'd have to replace the oil in the lamps, and they would have to place the incense in the altar of incense. But as far as going into the holiest of holies, no one could go into the holiest of holies. Except, look at verse number 7. But into the second part, the high priest went along once a year, not without blood. He could not go in there without blood. First of all, he had to make a sacrifice for himself. And then he had to make a sacrifice for the people. So he could not go in there without blood. And which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. And he, 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 let me go back. He says, but on the second part, the high priest went alone once a year. He could only go in there once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. So only the high priest could go into the holiest of holies and he could only go in there once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And when it, the first thing that he would do when he went in there, he would make an offering of a bull on the brazen altar. Then he would go through the ceremonial washings on the labor. And then the next thing he would do, he would choose two goats, two perfect, as perfect goats as they could find. And one goat... He would tie a scarlet cord around his neck because that goat was to be sacrificed. The second goat would become the scapegoat. We'll talk about him in just a second. So then the high priest would return to the brazen altar. He would take the blood of the bull that had been sacrificed and he would take it into the holiest of holies and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat seven times. The number of God, the divine number of perfection. He would sprinkle that blood seven times. Then after that, he would go back and he would would kill the sacrificial goat and he, he would sacrifice it on the brazen altar and he would take the blood back to the holiest of holies and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat seven times. He would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Then he would go out before the people and there was one other goat. Remember that goat? That was the scapegoat. And he would put his hands on the scapegoat. And this is what he would say. He would say, Bear the sin and be gone. Bear the sin and be gone. And then they would chase that goat out of the camp. Sometimes they some traditions said they chased it over a cliff so it would never come back. Some traditions say they, they chased him out and and set guards out in the wilderness to make sure that goat, they didn't want that goat coming back because that goat was carrying what? He was carrying their sins. And so they would, the goat would leave and the people would raise their hands and they would shout, forgiven, forgiven. The goat has taken our sins away. Once a year, that would take place. All right, now let's look at verses 8 through 10. We'll finish up here. He says, the Holy Spirit, is all this making sense to you so far? Yes. You know, whether it is or not, it's going to in a minute. Hang in there. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Hang in there. It's going to make a lot of sense when we look at the substance here in a minute. We're looking at the shadow right now. but We're going to take this and we're going to look at the substance here in just a few minutes. So hang in there. The Holy Spirit indicating this that the way into the holiest of all has not yet been made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. In other words, as long as the first tabernacle was still standing, you weren't getting into the presence of God. There's no way you could get into the presence of God. It was, a, it was symbolic. It was a shadow. It wasn't the real thing. Now, obviously, it was still taking place at that time in the temple, those sacrifices and those ceremonial washings and all of that kind of stuff because he's referring to it here in verses 9 and 10. He says it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to his conscience. In other words, it never really could take away your sin. It never really could open up the way into the presence of God. It concerned, really all it was was food, food offering, wave offerings, drink offerings, various washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation, until the time of the New Covenant. And until the New Covenant came, nobody went into the presence of God. Nobody. The high priest, once a year. But I'm going to tell you what, when he went in there, he was shaking in his boots. You know what they did when the high priest went into the holy, holiest of holies? They tied a rope around his, his foot because nobody was going to go in there and get him if he died because they knew that that would mean, meant death for them. Now, he had bells on, on the bottom of his, of his robe, and as long as those bells were ringing, he was all right. But if the bells quit ringing, they would just pull him out with a the rope. They weren't going in there after him. And it was such a holy place. It was such a holy place. You know, what he's saying here in verses 8 through 10 is this the Holy Spirit, or God, never intended for the shadow to get us into the presence of God. I mean, it's the substance. The thing that casts the shadow that gets you into the presence of God. He gave us the shadow to teach us about the real thing. Do you see the real thing when you look at this tabernacle? Do you see the real thing? Let me tell you what the real thing is. You know what the brazen altar is? That's the brazen altar right there. That's the brazen altar. That's where man meets God. That's where man has fellowship with God. That altar where Jesus Christ suffered and died and was broke, his body was broken and he was nailed to that cross for your sin. That's the brazen altar. The labor is his word and his spirit. When you come to that altar and you lay down your burden of sin, the next thing you do, you get washed in the Word and you get washed by the Holy Spirit. And then maybe you're ready to go into the holy place and to live your life as showbread in the presence of God, in the sight of God. You're ever in His sight. You're ever fresh in His sight. You don't grow stale in His sight. If you get stale, he's going to replace you with freshness because he doesn't like stale bread. He wants fresh bread. And you walk in the light. That's what the menorah is all about. You walk in the light as he is in the light. And we have fellowship one with another in Jesus Christ. And then there's the altar of incense. What's the altar of incense? That's our prayers. When you're walking in the light, as he is in the light, when you're living in his presence, he's hearing your prayers and he's answering your prayers. He's always answering your prayers. And he ever lives to pray for you. And then there's the golden censer. There's the golden censer. Man, you don't go into the holiest of holies. You don't go into the presence of God without the golden censer. See, because sometimes we walk from the cross and we forget the cross, but those burning coals always have to be there. To cleanse us. The blood of Christ does what? That's the burning coals that cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then the ark. The ark. Two arks in the Bible. There's Noah's ark. Was there any other way for Noah to be saved other than that ark? No. Who put him in the ark? God put him in the ark. Who shut the door behind him and never let him out? Couldn't have got out if he wanted to. It had been stupid to try to get out of there, but he couldn't have got out if he wanted to. God had shut the door. He was, the only salvation for Noah was the ark. The only salvation for you and me is the ark. Jesus Christ is the ark. He's the ark. What's all that stuff inside the ark represented? It rep- it's shadows of Jesus Christ. He is the bread of life. He is the manna. The world, the things of this world, religion is not the manna. Jesus Christ is the manna. He's everlasting, like that rod. He, he's everlasting. He gives us everlasting life. He is everlasting life. And I get accused sometimes of saying Christ is, you know, that, that, that I don't believe in the law. Christ is the law. That's why the Ten Commandments are there. You're not under law. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for those who believe. But you're not under law. But the law is who you are if you're in Christ. The law is part of your new nature if you're in Jesus Christ. The law is written on your mind and is written on your heart if your Christ is in you. And so he is the ark. And he's our scapegoat. He's our scapegoat. Man, he took took the hit for us. We laid our sins upon him, and he took them away as far as the east is from the west. And you know what the people shouted? You want to shout with me? Forgiven, forgiven. Let's try that again. Forgiven, forgiven. Man, that should make you want to shout. And you know, the most important thing in that entire tabernacle is the mercy seat. The mercy seat where that blood is sprinkled. Do you know what's sprinkled on the mercy seat in heaven? Not the blood of bull and goats. Read with me, jumping ahead to next week's lesson just a little bit. Read with me verse number eleven. But Christ came as high priest of good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation. That's a tabernacle made in heaven by the word of God. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. Theos amatos, the blood of God with his own blood. He entered the most holy place, the heavenly tabernacle once and for all having obtained eternal redemption. He saved you once and for all. He paid for all of your sins when he sprinkled his blood on the heavenly mercy seat. Man, is that not great news? And the veil. You know what the veil was? The veil was our sinful flesh that kept us from the presence of God. And What he did, he tore that veil in two when his flesh was torn in two for you and I. And that's why when he died on that cross, as he said it is finished, that veil was ripped in two and the very access of God or the very very place of God was, we were given access to that place by what he had done for us on the cross. And now there is nothing keeping us from entering the holiest, of holies. You ever been in there? You ever been in the holiest of holies? You know it if you've been there. You know, I believe there are a lot of Christians have never been in the holiest of holies. You'll know it if you've been there. You've ever actually sat in the presence of God? You, you're not going to forget that. God doesn't want to just to go in the holiest of holies. He wants to live out our lives in the holiest of holies, in peace and serenity, this great place of blessing and grace. Let me ask you a question as we finish up here. Where are you living? You're living somewhere on that diagram. Not literally, but you're living somewhere. You know, there's people in this room right now. I see a lot of you. I mean, not a lot of you, but some of you, I, I could tell. because You got, you know, if you got a little interest in this, I'll tell you where you're living. You're living outside the perimeter. And you're looking in today. And you see the brazen altar. You heard about the cross. But you've never come in. And you've never laid your burden down at the cross. And you've never see, received Jesus Christ into your heart. There's a lot of people in this world. A lot of people don't even care. They walk right past the tabernacle and never even peek in. They could care less. There's others that I believe have come to the brazen altar. They've come to the cross and they've laid down their burden and they've received Jesus Christ in their heart. And they've gotten into the word a little bit and they've washed themselves and cleansed themselves and by the power of the Spirit, they're cleansed. But they live their lives as if God's nowhere to be found. They're not cognizant of the very presence of God. They're not cognizant of the fact that they're living in the sight of God. That they're showbread. You know, I heard this past week about a pastor friend of mine. I, I can't even tell you what he did. I, it's just Unbelievable pastors that fall, people out here that fall, the things that I hear happen. Where is your fear of God? You can't do those kind of things if you really believe God's watching. You're you're living out here somewhere. If you're living where you really know that God's watching, it's going to change the way you live your life. There's so many people that are that, that they receive Christ and then that's it, and they don't walk in the light as He is in the light. And then there's people that there's a lot of us that we we've made it almost to the holy place. We we realize that God's watching what we do, and we we fear God. So it changes what we do. And so we walk in the light a little bit, most of the time, as he's in the light. Sometimes we drift off into darkness. But for the most part, we walk in the light as he's in the light. But we never go in to the holiest of holies. You know why? I'll give you two reasons. We just don't care enough to go in. We got too many other things to do. We're too worldly. There it is, wide open. The very access of God. But we'd rather watch TV. And, and again, I'm not putting down TV. But look at all the things we do that rob us of the opportunity of entering the presence of God. I'll tell you the second reason. We don't get into the holiest of holies because of our pride. Because of our pride, because we fail to see, we fail to look into the holiest of holies and we fail to look at that mercy seat and see that blood and realize that that nothing but the blood, nothing but the blood can get us into the holiest of holies. We still think somehow that the way we enter the presence of God is through our own personal goodness. You know what Paul says about that in Galatians chapter 5? He says, you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law, by your good works. You've become estranged from Christ. You're not living in the holies of holies. That's what he's saying. You're not living in the presence of God because you're not seeing the fact that God could care less about any of your works I mean, certainly he uses us in in service and certainly he wants us to live a holy life, be holy as he's holy. But as far as our salvation is concerned, as far as our sanctification is concerned, it's his blood that sanctifies us. It's his blood that makes us holy. It's his blood that gives us access into the holiest of holies. And if we don't see that, you know what we end up doing? We end up sewing the veil back up. Because we think somehow we can clean our flesh up, and we can't. Now let me ask you, where you want to live? Test God on this. Take your little chart in your bulletin. Figure out where you're living. And make an attempt by really just giving your time to enter the holiest of holies. Only by the blood. Nothing but the blood. And if you ever experience what God has for you in the holiest of holies, you'll never want to leave. You'll never want to leave. Because that's the greatest place you can possibly live out your life is in the very presence of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you that you've made the way through Jesus Christ. Lord, the substance so much greater than the shadows, Lord. You've made the way for us to enter into your very presence through his blood. Lord, in a way that that we sense your presence. Lord, make that the most important thing in our lives. To live close to you. To walk in the light as you're in the light in your very presence, Lord, and to enter into to your glory. To see you for who you are. Lord, that's where the blessing, that's where the peace, that's where the joy, and that's where the serenity is. So show us how to get there, Lord. We just thank you for Jesus Christ who's made the way. We thank you for just all he's done for us and who he is. No shadow, Lord. He's the real thing. Thank you, Jesus. We're forgiven. We're forgiven. In his name I pray. Amen.